All right, saints, if you would, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Now, last week we went through the first 11 verses. We looked through those whole portion of just abiding. And it's an amazing thing because as Jesus in those first 11 verses really begins to speak to us what our relationship to him looks like. And it needs to be abiding. It needs to be clinging. And then eventually, once we get here to verse 12 is where we're going to begin our text tonight. He begins to open up next what is the relationship that believers have with one another. And it's important to really grab a hold of that and define it. What is our relationship with Jesus Christ? What is our relationship to one another? And as he goes down to verse 18, he's then going to describe the next relationship, the relationship that we have with the world. And of course, that's a very tumultuous relationship. And then lastly, when we looked at verse, we're going to look at verse 26 and 27, then um, at the end of the message here, we're going to look at our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so this whole chapter is dealing with the relationships that we have. And I love it because it's not what we think these relationships should be. It's what the world declares the relation or what the word declares, not what the world declares. And so when we're at this portion of our text, we begin here in John chapter 15, verse 12. Now, what I want to do is I want to read verse 12. I want to read all the way down to verse 17 so you can kind of gravitate to what we're going to be looking at, the first part of just what God has for us tonight. In these first few verses, it simply declares this in John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and whatever you ask in the Father's name he may give you. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. It's interesting that when you look at verse 12 and you look at verse 17, that you see almost an identical thing. You almost see these two bookends, if you will, and then the insert is where it really deals with that relationship. The bookends in verse 12 says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Do you understand? Bookends. They're saying basically the same thing, that we need to love one another. And, and so, so keep in mind that as we, we look to this directive, that this is a directive that is not just something that we can decide on our own what it looks like, but it's a directive with a disclaimer. Take a look at verse 17. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. And then the disclaimer's here, as I have loved you. So keep in mind that the world tries to move the definition of love. It tries to change it. And I think oftentimes the church is guilty of this as well, where we try to make love into an emotion. We make love into this passion. And don't get me wrong, there's an aspect of love that, that you do feel and you are moved by, 
But when we take a look at love, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a church where you've looked at the passage there in Revelation where the Lord says, hey, you've left your first love. And then people say, are you as passionate with the Lord as you used to be? Are you as on fire with them? They make love into a, a passion. Well, keep in mind that God in his grace, God in his wisdom, gives a biblical definition of love. And, and this biblical definition of love is an action, not a passion. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a passage you know well. It's a passage we've looked at before. But I want to show you the biblical definition of love. So when we are called to love one another as he's loved, keep in mind that when we experience the love of Jesus Christ, we see action after action after action. And of course, the greatest action is what? There could be none greater than laying down your life for your friends. But in 1 Corinthians 13, he begins this, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have to get the prophecy, I understand all mysteries, and I know um, all knowledge, and though I have all faith, and that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. So he talks about work after work or after work, but he says, but I don't have love. And now what he does is this. In verse 4, he begins to define that love, to define that what is my actions behind these things? What is, what is that, that thing that, that moves me to declare things in love, to speak with the tongues of men and angels, to have the gift of prophecy, to have knowledge. It has to be based on this. And he makes a statement in verse 4, beginning to understand really what, what love is as a definition. He said, love suffers long and is kind. Absolutely amazing that what we see is that when he says love, it says it suffers long and is kind. The, the, the suffers long is, is two Greek words, mega and thumos. It means a, a huge, you know, macro, which is gigantic and, and massive. And so macro thume, and thume is a boiling point. It's, it's, it's a matter of heat. And it says you, you have this, this massive boiling point that you suffer long. It talks about that patience. It talks about that you're not getting angry. It says it suffers long and is kind. And I find this amazing that the very first definition is, is that you're not angry with people in their sin, but you're kind. And then we see so often that what? Well, we're angry at people's sin. I don't know as, as you, you listen to the news that, that what? It just infuriates you to the sin. You, you look to this and you get more and more angry, but it says God suffers long. Look at how long he waited for us while we were in sin, while we were enemies of the cross, and yet he loved us and continued to love us. Love suffers long and is kind. And so I just, I find this interesting that we see is that we're not overly focused on people's sin. We're not overly focused on the immaturity because a lot of times when you have young believers, what do they do? Oh, boy, they are zealous. They are zealous. They're zealous for, for holiness, and they think holiness is based on the law, and, and they, they literally look, and there's accusations going everywhere. But yet, I love the fact that he says, listen, that it's, it's in people's, 
where, where they haven't quite grasped the fullness of the scripture, if you find a place where they're immature, you love them. You're just kind. And I think it's so important that, that our words are always seasoned with grace, and it's important to, to recognize that. And so when it says it's long-suffering and it's kind, it's how can I come alongside and minister? Isn't it the most amazing thing when you, when you want to love is how can I come alongside and minister? Kind is not an emotion. It's not a passion. It's an action that we do. It's, it's a heart felt action, but it's one of those things is how can I come alongside and minister? You who are spiritual, when you seek to restore, what do you do? You do it with this, this heart that is, is one that is, is patient, and it's, it's one of those things where you who are spiritual seek to restore in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, it's one of those things, that's how we need to come alongside. And I'll tell you what, kindness is just kind of lost. It is one of those things, just to be kind. And, and we look to that, he says, this is the, the basic of the definition. Love suffers long and is kind. And it goes on, love doesn't envy. It doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. And so we recognize that the Christian life isn't a competition. And I think this is what happens when, when, you, when you take a look at what it's declaring here. It doesn't envy, it doesn't parade itself, and it's not puffed up. And how often do we see within the Christian church that it's all a competition? Look at how spiritual I am. Look at how, how this is an amazing ministry and that's an amazing ministry. And you, you compare or you're envious of someone else in their ministry. And yet the same thing is what? It becomes a competition. It becomes this thing in your head and in your heart that you're trying to compare their ministry to your ministry, their walk to your walk. And what do we do? Well, a lot of times what happens is this. We don't seek to elevate our own walk. We seek to what? Tear down someone else's walk. And I think I see this too often when it comes to one ministry versus another ministry, one church versus another church. Well, our church does this and their church does that. And it isn't a competition. And I think it's so important to recognize that here so often that there's this direction within the church and individuals within the body of Christ that they're constantly comparing themselves to one another. And what happens is this, is we look to the things that we do well, and then we look to the things that someone else that they don't do as well. We look to the uh, times that we put in for our devotions, and we look to the time that we've been put in for prayer. And yet other people say, no, no, it's all about witnessing. Look at how often I go out witnessing. And keep in mind that God is going to direct his body as he wills it. And it's so important to see here that one of these things that we recognize is, first, love suffers long and is kind. It's one of those things that, that I'm, I'm not going to be focused on your sin. I'm going to come alongside and how can I minister to you. But I'm going to make sure that I am not living a life of competition, that the church isn't living and projecting this mindset of competition. Ministries aren't projecting this mindset of competition. And this is what begins to happen. He says, love doesn't compete. Love doesn't compete. It's one of those things, and I, I find it intriguing because 
There are some people's nature that are constantly competitive, constantly competitive. And it's, it's, it's another time where I, I love it because there's another people whose nature really get this. And when someone competes, they say, all right, you win. You just win. And they just instantly concede. You win. You're amazing. Should we get you a trophy now? And, and they don't go into this place of competition. And I think it's so important when we recognize what is love. And it says so clearly, it doesn't envy it doesn't say, well, I wish my ministry was like that. It's not a competition. We do what God calls us to do and only what God calls us to do. And it isn't how other people see the ministry. It's what God sees in the ministry. And what he's looking at is this. He's looking at faithfulness. Are you faithful to what he's called you to do? To some, he's going to call you to do greater and greater things. Others, he's not going to call you to do greater things. Take a look at the disciples. In the book of Acts, you see Peter and John. You don't see a whole lot of Bartholomew. You just don't. You don't see a whole lot of Andrew. You don't. And then Paul comes on the scene, and you see everything about Paul. But what's interesting is this, is Paul would go on and say, listen, when it comes to the, 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 the disciples, the apostles, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but yet, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He, he called me in my sin. He's made me an apostle. And yet he said, I've done more than all the other ones. Yet it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was in me. He recognized it's not a competition. He did what God called him to do. And, and if others weren't recorded, they did what they were recorded. They were supposed to do. It didn't have to be recorded to make it to the God's glory. But he called them and he used them. I think it's so important to recognize this aspect of love. It, it's not having a competition. And, and I think it's so important that, that I don't compare my walk, my ministry with anyone else's. And he goes on in this definition. I think it's important to look at this. He says in verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It's one of those things where you have to be careful because there are mindsets that people rejoice in iniquity. The world is at that point right now where they are getting to the point where they're celebrating sin and they're wanting us to celebrate sin. If, if there are, are two people of the same sex getting married and the, the articles are, oh, look at the love that is there and we should celebrate that love. And yet the, the scripture says, well, we, don't, we don't celebrate sin. And I think it's so important when we look to this, and, and this is where we have to you know, gravitate to, where it, it, it makes that statement. He says, verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It isn't the celebration of sin. It isn't the celebration of you know, sinful unions. It isn't the, the, the celebration of sinful lifestyles where when someone says, oh, I've now entered into this lifestyle, we need to celebrate that lifestyle. We need to celebrate that person. The other thing to be careful on is this, is that there are a lot of times where we overly focus on our entertainment. And the entertainment is, is things that are, are pushing the world and its, 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 its values and its things. And we begin to do what? Well, we begin to look and say, wow, I'm, I'm celebrating this. And he says, you don't celebrate, and I think it's so important, iniquity, but you rejoice in the truth. 
You don't rejoice. You don't celebrate those things that God says these things need to be turned from. But you begin to focus on and rejoice in and, and move yourself to those things where it says very simply that it rejoices in the truth. And he goes on and he makes a statement in verse 8. He says, um, or verse 7, he says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And, and, and simply love never fails. And I, I think it's important. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We, we recognize it there in the book of Romans. And I just want to share with you one passage to you just so that you can kind of have this in your mindset when you look at this. In Romans chapter 13, I want to read just two verses to you. In Romans 13, verse 8, he makes this declaration. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You don't know anything anyway except to love. And then in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, it says this, Love does no harm. And I think this is such an amazing thing to recognize is that we do not grow weary in doing good. And this is where I think in that fullness of that definition, don't grow weary. Remember, love bears all things. Don't grow weary. Love believes all things. Don't grow weary. Love hopes all things. Don't grow weary. Love endures all things. Don't grow weary. Why? Love never fails. When you think I'm loving this person, I'm trying to minister to this person, it seems like you're getting nowhere, don't worry about what you think the outcome is supposed to be. Just plant a seed when God tells you to plant a seed. Water a seed where God calls you to water a seed and know that when he's ready, love will bring, God will bring the increase. And this is what's so important when it comes to this area. When it talks about here in our text, John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's one of those things that we've talked about it before, and I find it to be an intriguing test that you look to John chapter, or, or 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 11, and every time that it says love, put your name in there. See how it you know, lines up. And then after you get done doing that, you read the same passage again and you put Jesus' name in there. You understand, Jesus is going to pass with flying colors. You, on the other hand, <laughs> you don't have to tell me your score. Don't, don't call me up. Don't text me and say, wow, guess what? I've, I've gotten one better than the last time. Just recognize that we fail. He succeeds. And this is why he can say, love one another as I have loved you. There's a disclaimer. There's an understanding. And so we love as he's loved. And he goes on to say in verse 13, and this is where it's huge. He says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. It's unique that he comes through and he says the very highest love. The very highest love that you can ever do. And, and it's one of these things that he says you cannot perform an act of love that's greater than this when you do it through the Spirit. 
That, that, that's the, the, the epitome of the love. Once you've died to someone, you, you can't go beyond that. That's the furthest you can go. And so he makes that statement, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. At this point, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And in just a few hours, he's going to actually go through and demonstrate this love on the cross. So it's one of those things where we... we Take a look, and, and when you want to compare, if the disciples, like they used to say, you know, who's the greatest, let's debate on this, they could debate, well, who loves the most? Who is the one who loves the most? And Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what the greatest love is. And it's laying down your life for your friends. And after he says to lay down the life for the friends, it, it's unique that he says here in verse 14, he says, and you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. It's one of those things where at one point we were servants, now we're friends. And as he calls us friends, I want you to recognize he gives another disclaimer. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. It's one of those things where I want to give you two verses. We were, we've been looking in John chapter 14 for the last couple of weeks, and I want to give you two verses there in John 14. The first one I want to give is verse 15, where it says, If you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 31 of John 14, he says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. And it's important to recognize that the, the, the loving and the doing are side by side. They're, 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 they're meshed together. And if you say, well, I love him, but I don't do it, well, all of a sudden he says, listen, you, you have to understand, if you're my friends, you're going to do whatever I command you. If you're my friends, you're going to love me, and by loving me, you're going to do what I command you. And it's such an amazing thing that as he comes and he's talking about this friendship that we have with one another, he says, you can have this greatest friendship. You can have a friendship with me. And as you have this friendship with me, the key being, the, the thing that anchors it in, is when you have this active obedience. Now, for uh, keep in mind that a servant has to. Do you understand? A servant has to. If, if you are, you have a master and you're a servant and he says do this, you don't get to choose. Do you understand? A servant has to. A friend gets to, but he has to choose to. Now, I don't know if you've ever had one of those friends where he would always say, can you help me here? Can you help me here? And you can, you can help me here. And you constantly, sure, I'll come and help you. And then you come to point, can you help me? No, I don't have time. But yet, whenever he asks, you say, I sure I have time. But understand that you always choose to. A friend gets to choose. A servant does not get to choose. Do you understand that, that when you're working for a boss, you get to choose. A friend calls you up. Or you don't get to choose when your boss tells you to do something. But a friend calls you up and says, I don't have time. I would like to, and I wish I could, but I don't have time. And you can actually choose not to. And here's the amazing thing about being a friend. He said, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you. So we move from a have to 
to a get to. And then it comes to this point where as a friend, I, I love the heart of it because as a friend, I, I, I recognize that what I'm doing this is, is I want to. Have to, get to, want to. See, for Jesus Christ, he doesn't say you have to. That's the law. The law says you have to do this in order to get this. Jesus says, do you want to? You get to. We get to do the things that are furthering the kingdom of God. That's an amazing thing for us who were enemies of Christ to now be friends that he says, hey, now that you're a friend, would you do this? Absolutely. For you, I'll drop anything to do this. And we recognize here the heart. And I love what he says. You're my friends. You're my friends. A desire to want to. You get to if you do what I command you. And then he says this, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants. No longer is this a have-to thing. Keep in mind that it changes the relationship from an obligation where I'm obliged to and I have to do this. It's an obligation into what? A relationship now. See, a servant has to. A friend gets to. And he talks about the difference of, of really having to do something, choosing to do something, getting to do something. What's the difference? I don't know if there was ever jobs that you had to do as a child. For a child, one of the things that we had to do was weed the garden. We had big gardens and a lot of weeding. And we had to. And it was absolutely no fun. It was drudgery. Weeding row after row after row. And it's what we did. I mean, it kept us alive. You know, we, we had all of our vegetables and we had all of our fruits and so we did a lot of weeding, a lot of canning, a lot of picking, a lot of snipping, a lot of shelling, all these things we did, but it was a have to. Do you understand? It's a have to, and it drug on and drug on and drug on. And then as I got older, I thought, you know what? I want to do a garden. And I got to. And I realized, oh my goodness, I get to be here and I get to enjoy this. And it became not a have to, but, but I wanted to, I got to. And then I would tell my children, you're going to come and help me. And to them it was a have to. And they hated it and it drug on and on. But now as they got older, they do it themselves. And they go, wow, I'm finding joy in it now. Now it's, it's I get to. So keep in mind, there's this difference in this obligation. To one, he says, no longer do I call you servants, where there's not an obligation for you, but you get to serve. You want to serve. And so I, I love the fact that he says, what I've done is this. No longer, verse 15, do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. It's an amazing thing that here we see here that the Lord says, I have revealed my will to you. I've given you my will. And I keep revealing my will to you through my word and through my spirit. I'm going to constantly bring forth into your remembrance things that I've desired for you. 
And, and as we go through the word, there are things that God says, hey, you're starting to practice this. It's sin. Let it go. Repent of it. Confess it. Now do these things instead. Do the things that draw you closer to me. As we look to those things, I think it's important to recognize that in this text, he, he makes a statement, verse 15, no longer do I call you friends for a servant does not know what his master is doing. A master has no rule or requirement to tell a servant why he wants something done. He just says, get it done. The outcome is all him. But for a friend, a friend you, you want to hopefully get them to want to do it. So you tell them, here's the benefits. This is what we're doing. And a friend you actually communicate with, not just a servant. I want to take you to a couple passages because I want you to understand what it means to have someone who is a friend. There's a passage, and it begins this in Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. You know it well. This is where God had come and he visited Abram. As he visited Abram, it was a unique thing that he, God was going to come and he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But before he does, he meets with Abram. Abram meets with God. He, he goes and has the, the, um, his wife make the bread. And he goes and he, you know, he takes that, that um, calf and he prepares it for the men. And eventually, after they finished eating... It begins this, and it's, it's an amazing passage in Genesis 18, verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? I need to reveal it to him. I need to speak it to him. And we recognize that in that process of God speaking to Abraham, declaring what he was going to do with Abraham as Abraham begins to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah, for the city in which Lot lived in. A couple of passages to be aware. that The first is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. Just jot it down. It says this, You are not, are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel? And you gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. I love the fact that he calls Abraham in this instant his friend. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, he says, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the descendant of Abraham, my friend. It's absolutely amazing that as he comes, as Abraham was a friend, Abraham chose, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. All these things that he just recognized, these are the relationships that I have with you that is a one-sided, it's a covenant that you made with me to give me this land, to give these, my descendants this land. I'm a friend. Now, when Israel came on the scene, Jacob, what happened? Well, Jacob gets the law. This is a, if you do this, then you'll get that. This is now one of those things where it's, it's that servant relationship that you must do, you must do. But I love the fact that we are not in that relationship of the law like Israel was. We are now what? We're in grace. And God reveals these things to us. And as he reveals these things, it's so important. He says, I have called you friends. 
For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He makes known to us this blessedness of the gospel. He makes known to us the understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And as he does so, it's just a beautiful picture of what he does. And in verse 16 now, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. And that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask in the Father, the Father in my name, he may give you. This is a huge thing because for us, we like to choose up on friends. I mean, think about it for, for just a moment. If you could say that my friend was someone who's high up in politics or someone who's high up in, in you know, popularity, that, that someone could say, you know, um, me and, and Charlton Heston, the guy that played Moses years ago, he's my friend. Ooh, you're a, oh yeah, yeah, I got him on my speed dial right here. You know, it's one of those things. But for Charlton Heston to come and publicly announce, hey, you know, Lowell's my friend, that's something that's huge. See, we like to upgrade, we like to name drop those that we think, wow, this is amazing. You know, for, for someone to say that I'm a friend of the President of the United States. Ooh. It's one of those things where Jesus says, you got to understand, you didn't choose me. It wasn't you that initiated this friendship. I chose you as a friend. I've chosen this relationship, and I appointed that you should now be a part of me, abide in me, the relationship that you have in me. Is I've chosen you to be a friend, that you can bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And then whatever you ask the Father in my name. Again, that term, my name, holds two connotations. One, it's unlimited in its scope, that there is no degree of difficulty that you can ask God in prayer the God says, oh, that one's too hard for me. Do you understand? When you ask it in Jesus' name, you're saying there is no limitation to the degree of difficulty. Where God says, oh, no, I can't do that. No, he can create anything by speaking it into existence. Nothing's too hard from God. But understand, although he talks about there's no limitation as far as degree of difficulty, he does say this, there is a limitation because it has to be done what? in my name or in my character or in my nature. That you, when you ask the Father something, it has to be what? In the character of his words, in the character of his love, in the character of who he's declared he is. And so we ask the Father in his name, and we ask it in his character, we ask it in his word, we ask it in his will, the Father will do those things. We become the instrument, the vessel, for God to fulfill the will of his kingdom. And then, of course, he ends it with that other sandwich. These things that command you that you love one another. So an amazing thing. He talks about our relationship with the world. And it's one of those things, and I just want to just kind of just once again just say, you know what? It, don't be focused on the sin. It's about long-suffering and kindness. It's not about competition. It's truly about giving yourself over. And now he does this in verse 18. And I want to read from verses 18 through 25 so you can understand the relationship that we have with the world. He says this in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things that I have said to you for my name's that they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and have also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It's interesting that we see now the relationship that we have with the world. We saw the relationship with believers, and now we see the relationship that we have with the world, the relationship the world has with us. And, and, and I want you to recognize that the disciple is what? And known by their love. The world is known by what? By its hate. And it's an amazing thing, these two directives, because... He says this, the world is going to hate you. And he says, if the world hates you, which it's going to do, know that it hated me before it hated you. The world will hate you. Two things that I want you to recognize. I want to give you just a couple of passages to, to jot down, maybe mull through as you go through this process of the world hating you, understanding what it means it declares this in John 16, verse 1, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Let me read it to you. It simply makes this declaration. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's one of those things where if you want to walk with God, understand that what's going to happen is that there is going to be tribulation. There in the book of Acts chapter 14 verse 22, it declares this, Luke writes, strengthen the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. It's one of those things where our relationship with the world is going to be one of tribulations. It, it just has to be. That's the relationship that we do. We recognize as we go through the kingdom, there is going to be issues with us in the world. And we recognize, and I love what Paul does in the book of Acts. He said, we would go into the synagogue and we would reason from the scriptures. We would, we would very intelligently, very simply begin to discuss biblical foundations and we would use the scriptures and we would reason from the scriptures. The problem was, is they would win the arguments. And when you can't win through reason, what do you do? Then you inflame the passions. And that way they would just flip out. They said, this man is just saying the law is wrong and the law is dead. And, and they would just get irate. And they would just inflame the, the, the passions of people. They'd run them out of the synagogue. They'd run them out of town. And they said, you know, these are the people who are turning the world upside down. 
And I think it's so important that when Paul go in, he'd reason, they would have their passions inflamed. And I want you to understand what, what Paul says he went through just to get out the gospel. He says this, and I want to read to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read from verses 23 down to 30 because he says this. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more so. And labors more abundant and stripes above measure and prisons more frequently and deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Do you understand? The world hates him. And three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep and journeys often in perils of water and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the city and perils in the wilderness and perils of the sea and perils of false brethren in weariness, toil, sleepness is often, in hunger, thirst, fasting is often, cold and nakedness. Besides these other things which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. It's an incredible thing that as he goes through this, he says, you've got to understand that here the world is going to hate you. It is just going to hate you. It says in verse 19 of our text, it says, and if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Keep in mind that where we as Christians come to the point in our mentality, remember where Paul wrote to the church of Rome? And he made a statement in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I just want to read it to you. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let your mind gravitate to what the, the, the world is doing. Don't let your mind gravitate in that way. What he says is this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let scripture put a new thought, a new process, a new thing in your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do what God declares. Keep his commandments. Walk his word. Let that be what transforms your mind. And I think it's so important that when we see this, you have to understand that a believer is not out of step with the world. I believe this. A believer is out of place in the world. It's not just I'm a degree down, I'm a degree down. Because what happens is this. I think the church has been so compromised. There was a time where the church was very pure and the world itself was still evil. But as the world has gone more and more and more evil, what happens is this. The church has maintained its degree of separation. What should happen is this, the world should get more wicked. We should do what? We should draw more and more to Christ. There should be a greater, greater separation. Not as the world gets worse, we still maintain the degree of separation where we begin to accept these things of the world. And this is where I think it's so important that as we come to this understanding, we see here, if we were of the world, the world would love its own. We need to truly just transform our minds. We need to let renew our minds, not go into the things of the world. Because we see here very simply in verse 19 of our text, he says, if you were of the world, would the world love you? But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. What does he mean by this? 
couple of passages. I want you to understand a biblical foundation of this because I do believe this is important to realize that we're hated because God accepts us. We're not hated because we simply do the Christian thing. We do the Christian thing, why? Because God accepts us. He's called us friends. He initiates everything. And because he's done this, we now lean to what he does. And because he accepts us, and this is the key, because he's chosen us and he's called us and he's put his favor upon us, the world hates us. Let me give you a couple of understandings. Jot this down. If you want, you can turn there. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, it simply declares this. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. So we see in verse 3, the process of time, that Cain, he goes and he brings an offering of the, of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. He brings an offering to the Lord. Abel also brings an offering to the Lord. And what Cain does is he brings the, the fruit of his works. Abel brings the blood of something that isn't his. And, and uniquely, it says this, through their heart, through their, their, what they were doing, Genesis 4 verse 5 says, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So understand what's happening. The Lord respected Abel, the Lord respected his offering, and he did not respect Cain and his offering. So Abel was received, Abel was accepted, Cain was not. And so Cain was angry and his countenance fell. Now I want you to see where his anger is placed. What did Abel do to Cain? Nothing. Cain went to God. God didn't respect it, tried to help him out, teach him, guide him. And so God would go to Cain in verse 6, says, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do the right things, I'll accept you. So it's about you changing who you are, not about having the world change who they are, not about... Abel changing what he is, you just need to deal with you. If you do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. He constantly is guiding Cain to come back into doing the right things. But it says this in verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Do you understand that he hated his brother because God accepted his brother. And he didn't accept him. Now, he could have been accepted. God told him how to be accepted. He says, I want to accept you. I made a way to be accepted. Why don't you come and do those right things? But what's happened is this. Because God showed favor to Abel, Cain hates Abel. Because God shows favor to us, the world hates us. If you're familiar with that passage, remember how when God rejected Saul, the first king of Israel, and he says, listen, because you haven't kept my commandments, you didn't listen, and you've rejected my words, I've rejected you from being king. But then God did something else. He came and he chose through Samuel, the, the, the youngest son of Jesse, David. And amazingly, we, we recognize that, that God chose David. 
God put his spirit upon David. And it says this, and I want you to just note here the, the progression of what Saul, the first king, does with David. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, I'm going to start reading from verses 12 to verse 16. Jump over to 19 for just a second. But in 1 Samuel 18, verses 12 to 16, it says this, Now Saul was afraid of David. He was afraid because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. Do you understand the relationship? He knows you're accepted by God. I'm not. And because of this, he's afraid. Therefore, verse 13, Saul removed him from his presence and made him a captain over a thousand. He went out and came in before the people. David behaved wisely in all his ways. The Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. They see the hand of God, but Saul, because he's not chosen of God, now begins to be very afraid of him. And so in chapter 19, I want you to understand what happens through the relationship of Saul and David. Saul, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 19, spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. What did David do? He just went in and out. He behaved wisely. The Spirit of God was upon him. But that wasn't good enough for Saul. Now, in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, verses 9 and 10, a distressing spirit for the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in the house with a spear in his hand. David was playing music with his hand. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence. And he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Do you understand? David is still seeking to minister, but because Saul recognizes you have the spirit of God, I have this distressing spirit, he wants David dead. He goes on in verse 15 of chapter 19 to make this statement. Then Saul sent messengers back to to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. It's one of those things where understand what happened, that David literally was called by God. David was chosen by God. David had God's favor. And so God, Saul, hated David. Why? Only because what? Only because David was chosen by God. He wanted David dead because he was chosen by God. And this is that same thing of the world. Remember now, when Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul the Apostle, initially he would hate the church. Why? Because the church was chosen by God. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is my church. This is whom I've chosen, whom I poured my blessings upon. And Saul hated the fact that what? the church wouldn't conform to what Paul was saying they should conform to. They were free in Christ. And it's one of those things that I want you to recognize. He says in verse 19, back in our text, if you were of the world, the world would love its own because you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because we're gods, because he chose us out of the world, 
Because we, we recognize that we're out of place in this world. We're in the world, but not of it. And as we do, then the world hates us. And then he says this, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So understand, they first reject God and his word. They reject the wisdom that comes from God. It's amazing. We've been going through on, on Sunday mornings in the book of Proverbs, these beautiful Proverbs, and we're in chapter 8 where wisdom is crying out. Wisdom is saying, come to me. Wisdom is saying, here, I, I, I got a word for you. I'm at the door. Come, and, and you can understand the, the very great wisdom of God. But it says this in Proverbs 8, beginning in verse 32. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whoever finds me, this is the wisdom of God, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But whoever sins against me wrongs his own soul. All who hate me love death. Those who hate wisdom, those who hate the word of God, they just love death. They love darkness because they want to be in darkness. Their deeds are evil, and this is where they want to stay. And this is why here the Lord so wonderfully says in verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you? Remember the wisdom that I gave to you? Remember the instruction that I gave to you? A servant is not greater than our master, than his master. If they persecuted me because of my words then understand they will persecute you for declaring my words. And they will, if they kept my word, well, then they'd keep yours also. But all these things, verse 21, they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. This is a powerful statement now. I want you to understand that what he's saying now is, is very clearly... I want to read verses 21 and I want to read verse 24 because it says this, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. In verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they've seen me and they have both hated me and my father. I want you to understand that the Pharisees, the rulers of the Jews, were the champions of the law to what they saw in themselves. They were champions of the law. But what were they? They were the biggest haters of God because they couldn't receive Jesus Christ. They couldn't receive the ministry of Jesus Christ. They, they literally, they, they, they kept only what they thought the word meant. They kept their traditions and what they thought the word declared. That's what they did. And they wouldn't keep it in the heart, the, the spirit of the law. They would try to only do it in the outward. In other words, outwardly, they were whitewashed sepulchers. Inward, they were dead man's bones. And so keep in mind that here, they were evident that they didn't keep the word of God because they hated Jesus Christ. And Jesus did what? So amazingly that everything that Jesus proclaimed was this. He warned them against their pride, 
wanting all the best things and wanting people to, to notice them, getting the best seats in the synagogue, having people say, oh, look at this rabbi, he's praying, all these wonderful prayers. And he says, listen, I, I got to deal with you in your pride. I got to deal with you in your sin. And so he would say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And in every time that he gave one of the, the blessings there in the, the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes, everyone he'd give an opposite woe to the Pharisees. You're not doing these things. So understand that as he says this in verse 21, in verse 22, he says, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. If they had come, if they had not come, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse. I've come and I've shared the heart of God. I've walked the heart of God. And the reason they hate me is because people love me. And because I come from the Father. And I'm showing them what is true. And now they have no excuse for their sin. I've told them to forsake the pride. I've told them to forsake the letter of the law like they're doing and come into the spirit and receive me because you could not be righteous through the keeping of the law. The law would only condemn. He says, but I've come to give you life. They wouldn't come to him to receive life. And so he says in verse 23, he who hates me hates my father. As they claim to be lovers of God and the champions of the law, Jesus said, yeah, you might be a champion of the law in your own mind, but keep in mind that you have degraded the law to a standard that is way below what God says. His standard is you can't do it, come to me. And then in verse 24, he says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did. They're, they're accusing me because what? I make a blind man see. They're accusing me because I make a lame man walk. Now, now, why didn't they make the blind man see? Why didn't they make the lame man walk? They didn't do that, but they're accusing me. And so we recognize, he says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they'd have no sin. Because remember what Jesus said, either believe me or believe the works that I do, for they testify of me that I do the will of my Father. And so he makes this statement, but now they have seen, they've seen the works that I've done, and they've hated me and my father. They've seen the works, and they still wanted to kill me. But this happened, verse 25, the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. He quotes from Psalm 69. Now he says this in verse 26 and 27. After he talks about the relationship that we have with one another, love as the way that Jesus loved, he talks about the relationship in the world that they're going to simply hate you. No, they're going to hate you. There's nothing you can do to change that because you're not of the world. Then he talks about this relationship with the Holy Spirit. And this is where I love how he brings it back. He uses the, the, believe, the relationship with each other and the relationship with the Spirit to kind of cushion all the negative hatred of the world. Because in verse 26 he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He talks about the Spirit, the Helper, the one who comes alongside. 
And when he comes, he says, who I'm going to send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is going to guide us into the commands. The Spirit is going to guide us into what is light. And, and he says that the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he's going to testify of Christ. And this is where the world misses. See, they see the word as what? Like the Pharisees, they see the word as a law. They see the word as a do. They see the word as a don't. We see it not as a have to. We see it what? I choose to and I get to. And it's a whole different relationship that we have. And the world doesn't understand that. But the Spirit is going to teach us and it's going to testify. Here's the heart of God. And, and this is what he's, he's chosen you. He's called you friends. And now he's called you to do the work. And then in verse 27, it says, And you also will, will bear witness because you have been with me. As the Spirit bears witness, the Spirit's in you. You walk the things of the Spirit. Your life will bear witness. And I love the fact that we don't have to strive. Just like the bearing of fruit, you abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. You don't see the, the great branches groaning and grunting. Oh, here comes the grapes. It just abides, and it comes so naturally. And that's what we also, we will bear witness so naturally. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is guiding us because of the relationship we have. And then through the Spirit, the Spirit is going to cause us to do one thing, love. Just love. And may that be the testimony that we have as believers, that we will be those who literally are long-suffering and are kind, that we're, we're not competing with one another, that it's one of those things that I'm just going to walk with my God. I'm going to walk in what he directs me through his word and through his spirit. And I don't need to compete with what he's directing you to do through his word and through his spirit. I just need to be faithful in him and what he's calling me to do. And it just frees me up. So I can rejoice in what he's calling you to do, and you can rejoice in what he's calling me to do, even though it's not the same. That we get to do this because we're led by the Spirit, and this is what happens. He will declare the, the things that Jesus says what? The main thing is not all the doing. The main thing is the love. Will you love? Will you accept? Will you be long-suffering? Will you be kind? This is the thing that should drive us as a church and should drive us as individuals, should drive us as the children of God. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for this word. It's, it's one of those things where we look to the relationships, and so often the world has its own definitions. But, God, we're so grateful that you have given us the definition of your word. You've taught us what love is. It's not an emotion. It's an action. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a behavior, Lord. A behavior that so often we fail in. We judge. We're not kind. We compete. But yet you said, be patient. Hang on. Don't grow weary in doing good because love will bear all things, believe all things, hope all things. It'll never fail. And then you, you direct us that the world is going to hate you. It only hates us because you've chosen us, Lord. And if we do what you do, they, they hate it because it's your word that we're walking on. Not, that, not hating us. They hate you first. And their anger is vehement against you first. 
in the same way as that that, that Abel did nothing against Canaan. It was hated. The church had nothing against Saul. It was hated. David did nothing against his king, and he was hated. So we do nothing against the world other than what we walk in the light and we testify. We testify your word. We testify your heart. We walk the truth, and they hate that. That we are those who do not rejoice in iniquity. We do not celebrate sin, but we celebrate truth. We rejoice in the truth. That's who we are as your children. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us on our own, but you've given us the Holy Spirit that's going to illuminate the word and illuminate your will, and that we can walk in these things in your power. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us to these truths tonight. May they anchor themselves in our walks. May you be glorified in that. Knit our hearts to you in this word, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said,